Welcome to Office Baggage, where two corporate women unpack our week in business. Every week, co-hosts Ray Parent and Marcy Tweet tackle the WTF business topics you want to talk about on every rung of the business ladder. Bring your baggage. We'll We'll unpack it. Good morning, Office Baggage listeners, and welcome back to Office Baggage Podcast. A few months ago, I had an incredible conversation with my friend Kelly Long about women and money. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and do it. It's absolutely worth the listen. I heard such great feedback from all of you about that episode, and we want to do more on this topic and continue to bring you the content that gets you to the next level in your life and your career. And there is no more baggage-ridden topic for women, for anyone really, than money. Negotiating, saving, budgeting, ensuring our roles in finance are equitable with our partners and even our male colleagues. The baggage gets heavier and heavier and heavier. So here today to lighten the load on some of that baggage is the president of Marino Wealth, Jessica Marino. Jessica is a certified financial planner who is truly at the top of her game and providing sound and thoughtful financial planning for her clients. Jessica will tell her story of starting her business on today's podcast, but I would be remiss if I didn't introduce her by telling you about some of her incredible accolades. She was awarded 2019's Young Entrepreneur of the Year by the Chicago chapter of the National Association of Women Business Owners. She also received the Certified Investment Management Analyst Certification through the Investments and Wealth Institute. And one of my favorite things about Jessica is her unwavering commitment to women and money. Only 17% of financial advisors are women. Jessica is passionate about mentoring and collaborating with other female financial advisors, and she ensures women have the same access to financial opportunities as our male partners, colleagues, and allies. Jessica has been my friend and colleague. We've served on a board together at Step Up Women's Network, and I'm so honored to have her on the podcast today. It's also important because Jessica is a certified financial planner that before we begin this conversation, we make sure to state that the views Jessica is expressing today on the podcast are hers alone. They don't represent the views of her broker-dealer, the Investment Center, Inc., or any other member of their staff. The information contained in this podcast is derived from sources that Jessica and I both believe to be accurate. However, we don't guarantee the accuracy. The information contained is for general use and not intended to cover all aspects of a particular matter. None of the information presented nor any opinion expressed constitutes a representation by Jessica of any of our listeners or as a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities. Jessica is a registered representative with the Investment Center, Inc., a broker-dealer in Bedminster, New Jersey, a member of FINRA slash SIPC. All securities offered through the Investment Center, Inc. are offered through IC Advisory Services, Inc. Jessica works for and owns Marino Wealth Management in Chicago, Illinois. They are not affiliated directly with the Investment Center or IC Advisory Services. Now that you've heard that legalese and statement that this is general advice from Jessica, not individual financial planning advice for any of our individual listeners, 
please take a listen to what she has to say. I know you'll love hearing her story. I know you'll love hearing about her. And I know she'll give you great advice, general advice, on your finances that can make you healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Stay with us. I'm joined today on Office Baggage with my dear friend, longtime friend, and former colleague on the board of of a great nonprofit here in Chicago where we met, Step Up, Jessica Marino. Jessica, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I always like to start when we have uh, entrepreneurs on the podcast, when we have new women on the podcast, to, to kind of get your story of how did you get to where you are? We're going to dive in with Jess today. She's a, a powerhouse when it comes to finance and, and investments for women. But I'd love to hear, how did you get into investment management? What attracted you to this in the first place? Because it still is a very male-dominated field, and it's something you've been passionate about from, from a young age. So talk to me a little bit about your journey to where you are now. Yeah, yeah. So my story's um, a little funny, a little quirky. So um, when I was about eight or nine years old, um, I actually came across uh, the business section in the paper. Um, My parents used to subscribe to the Chicago Tribune. They'd have it laying around. Um, And there was an article with low price stocks um, that I stumbled upon. And from that point, and I cut it out and I carried it around. They were stocks that worked in my nine-year-old budget. And um, from that point on, I became fascinated with the idea of investing and owning uh, shares of stock. Um, And I I should say, I'm the oldest of four kids. I grew up in a really middle-class family. Um, My father's from Ecuador. My mother is like Northside Irish Catholic. Um, So definitely not a household where we were talking about the stock market by any means. So again, kind of this weird thing that just happened one day. Um, So then every year for my birthday and Christmas, at the top of my list, I would put shares of stock. Wow. And and, uh, every year, um, everyone ignored it. (laughs) They thought I was a little crazy. They thought I'd be disappointed. Um, And then finally, when I turned 14, um, my grandparents, actually, they had a stockbroker and they broke down and they bought me one share of Walmart um, and they opened up an account for me. Wow. Yeah. So then at that point in time, uh, I started investing um, my own money from like babysitting and summer jobs and everything. Um, and I became really interested in the stock market, you know, kind of a little more hands-on there. And uh, then naturally I majored in finance. I went to the University of Wisconsin, Madison, uh, and I became a financial advisor right out of college. So uh, I, um, you know, was just open to different jobs in like the investing world. Didn't quite know exactly what that meant. Um, and Um, When I became an advisor, it in many ways wound up being a really great fit. Like I loved working with clients. Uh, I, you know, loved, uh, you know, taking kind of that analytical side of things and then also not necessarily being analytical all day long, you know, so kind of pairing that with also being with people and building relationships and everything. Um, And so that was um, in 2004. And uh, I worked for a big firm for about 12 years. And then um, I started, I decided to take the next step, started my own firm, um, Marina Wealth Management, back in 2016. So we just had our four-year anniversary. Congratulations. That's always exciting. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And uh, yeah, so then that's where we're at today. Of course, of course, a lot of other stuff happened along the way, but... (laughs) And we'll dive into all of that. So you've had, though, some really interesting hurdles coming up in this, this field, especially working in a big financial services company before you took this step into your own firm, how hard is it to be a, a young woman in that space? 
Yeah, so I, I believe it's incredibly difficult, quite honestly. Um, and, and I think the only reason why I kind of stuck it out was almost like stubbornness or grit, you know, kind of that concept of- Well, uh, you've your- been in it since you were nine. So <laughs> you got, got the grit. Yeah, so, um, but it was, it was tough. So when I was a new advisor, um, you know, you kind of have these, uh, a couple different hurdles that, um, that I encountered at least. So one was being a woman and the other one was being young. Um, and so having both was a double whammy uh, in that respect. Um, our industry as a whole just has still to this day very little diversity. So most of the individuals who are financial advisors um, are 20 years older than me, they're men and they're white. Um, and so every other group that you could think of is just totally underrepresented um, within our industry. So um, so it was tough. and. Um, the the way that, that I kind of think but the analogy um, that I've come up with is it's kind of like we all started running a marathon together and you're like, you know, standing there at, at ready to go, ready for the whistle to go off or the, you know, the start. Um, and we're all handed a pair of boxer briefs. And so for some people, the boxer briefs work well for the guys, right? That, that's probably what yeah. they need to run a marathon, right? Um, but then there are a whole lot of people where maybe boxer briefs aren't going to be what you need, right? Maybe you could use a sports bra or some water or a lot of other tools that would actually be better for you. And so, um, and so the way um, that I kind of think of this as like an analogy, right, is that there are some people like myself who will kind of stick it out and use this equipment that doesn't quite fit well and, and just kind of make the best of it. And there are a lot of other people that just throw in the towel and say, you know, screw this. I, I just, this isn't worth it to me. Or I, you know, this is just too hard or this isn't worth all the sacrifices and everything. And so, um, so unfortunately, I feel like we're still kind of in this vicious cycle where um, we're just still very much underrepresented with a lot of demographics in our industry. And so, um, so, so yeah, so it's tough. And um, I mean, again, all along the way, though, even from the beginning, when I started taking on clients, I just really loved that connection of working with clients. Um, I loved um, just the relationships I built with them and everything. And so definitely along the way, I mean, that was kind of the glimmer of hope that would, you know, kind of keep me going day in and day out and everything. It's just, you know, so so there might be a tough day or, um, you know, there was a lot of rejection in the beginning and stuff or just a lot of feeling out of place. Um, but then I might have a really great client meeting and then feel like, okay, this is, this is all really worth mm-hmm. it. I, I really love this and everything. Um, I love your analogy of the marathon and, and being, <laughs> it, it is for a woman in, in the financial services industry, it's, it's starting with a handicap from the beginning. And so much of what has been happening in the, the world right now is about that sense of starting with less than less privilege, less ability, less, you know, all historical things that are wrapped into all of these, these um, racial justice issues that we're all dealing with and should be, should be dealing with right now. Do you see change happening? Do you think that a woman coming into financial services as a, as a planner um, today is in a better position? You think they're giving her more than boxer briefs yet, or are they not there? I'm wondering how you see it now versus 15 years ago. Yeah, so I do think there's definitely been um, some progress that's been made for sure. Um, But I think it depends on where you're looking. So I know one thing that I felt, you know, kind of 15 years in now is that um, we see a lot of women's initiatives, whether it's for advisors, whether it's for clients, and sometimes it's, it's just 
um, it's very surface level, right? They might put women on a brochure. They might say, let's have a women's event or a women's conference or come learn. Um, that, but I find that sometimes it's very surface level. Um, in other cases, it is very like true and meaningful. Like for example, the CFP has um, a mentor program and they specifically have um, one for women. Um, they have various mentor programs where they try to pair up various um, uh, minorities and everything. So, so I do think you can find kind of those true and genuine connections to, um, to receive the resources that you need. Um, but I think it really just depends on where you're looking because I know it, it kind of seems like in the last handful of years, like everyone's been saying, let's work with more women, let's hire more women, but I don't know that they always really back it up. And, and I think that this mm -hmm. is um, something that that's common, I think, when we think of diversity initiatives in general, you know, that you can put some money at it and, you know, kind of use it as a marketing tool, but, but you don't necessarily always drive a lot of change unless it's really backed up and really genuine and everything. So, um, and I and know from, from your story, this is a lot of the reason that you wanted to start your own firm, right? Is to get that, that focus right from the get-go and to make it really authentic. So talk about, starting your own firm, getting that messaging and values and integrity right from the beginning. What, what gave you the grit to, to make that decision, first of all? And, and then how did you really set up your firm for success as you launched early on? So, um, so what's interesting is what actually prompted me to start my own firm um, was that I was continuing to feel like I was having a hard time finding the right fit for myself. Um, so I was at the same firm for 12 years and I'd always told myself, like, I'm not just going to join another financial services firm unless there's a really compelling reason. Um, because leaving your firm and, and worrying about client accounts and clients can be um, just a real big challenge and it's really disruptive for the clients and everything. And so I just didn't want to do that in, unless I knew that it was going to be compelling. Um, and so what actually had happened is um, along the way, while I was at that firm, I worked at a number of different offices. Um, the company had like a franchise model. So I worked for a number of different advisors as an advisor each time. Um, and the last practice I was at, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought things were going really well. And then we started renegotiating my contract and we weren't seeing eye to eye. Um, so that was really the catalyst. I thought I would have stayed there for years. Um, I, you know, I had exceeded the goals in my contract, but, but somehow we were renegotiating and it just wasn't going to be as favorable. Um, and so that's what really caused me to take a step back and say, well, well, what are my options here? Right. I can stay here and not totally be happy. And on the other end, they're probably not going to be that happy either. because We're kind of compromising. Um, I can try to find another office to work in. Um, but I, at that point I felt like I had limited options. Um, I could look into becoming a franchisee myself, but when I kind of looked at the logistics of that, that didn't seem to be a good fit for me and my clients um, due to the types of clients that company works with. Um, and so then I, I kind of thought, well, you know, I have some friends that have gone off on their own. Maybe I should start seeing what that looks like. Um, and the great thing about that is the more that I talked to friends who had done this, um, each of their companies looked dramatically different. The way they structured things, the way that they worked with clients, the types of clients, um, and so it really seemed appealing to me is just having that freedom and flexibility to say, okay, this is who I work with. This is who I really enjoy working with. This is what's going well. Where can I kind of place that best and then just kind of take it a step further. Um, and so then when I, when I started the company too, I mean, prior to that, I'd been working with women for a long time, um, specifically working a lot with women um, who are millennials and Gen Xers, a lot of entrepreneurs. 
And um, I really just decided to take everything a step further. Um, and then coincidentally enough, I started the company in April of 2016. And then um, you might've heard we had an election that, um, that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and I feel like that <laughs> really kind of shook a lot of us, yeah. uh, shook me to the core. Uh, and, and so just more and more, I felt like we had already had this momentum on kind of taking things a step further, which, which at the time was a risk, right? To put things that sounded very feminist um, or very out there um, on, on like the website and everything, you know, I, I kind of hoped there'd be enough people out there that liked our messaging, right? But it was a little bit of a risk to not have it as toned down as I had when I was under the big corporate umbrella. Um, and so then, you know, and then um, since that time, you know, what we found is just the feedback's been so great and clients really love it. And just the more that we put our ideas out there and our thoughts out there and align, um, everything like our services um what we do with corporate dollars the types of companies we let clients invest in just kind of everything the more that we try to be more conscious about it um you know the more that we get positive feedback and then i think it just kind of um encourages it right it, it just it prompts us to want to do more and more and more um so uh so definitely i mean <clears throat> if you would ask me four years ago if i knew exactly where it would be sitting right now or, or the different moves I would have made within the company. I don't know that I quite knew all of that, but it's, um, it's definitely uh, very much worked out organically, which has been really great. Um, one of the well, and I'm sure it's, it's fun for you because when you do put your authentic message out there and, and you do, you know, for you talk about your feminist principles and, and be very clear about who you are as a leader, as an entrepreneur, then I would assume you get clients who share those values. And, you know, you don't, you and I are the same way. We don't want to be working with people who aren't, who don't share our, our ethos and our values in our lives. And I, I'm sure it makes your work more fun every day to not feel like you have to compromise or hide yourself and your beliefs with the people that you work with. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it has been wonderful too for um, like employees, you know, to show up to work and feel like they can be authentic um, feel as though they're being respected and treated equally and, you know, aside from any personal demographics or anything that they would have going on in their situation. Same with our clients too. Um, and I, I think definitely uh, it's just been, it's been like just a really wonderful piece of the business, I think. And, and one thing that we do as a company is actually twice a year, we will get together for like an offsite retreat and um, we'll really just take the time to kind of look at the um, the company, look at the business, look at our mission, and, and really from there, try to think of ways we can make things better. Um, and I find that just kind of that connection with the work we're doing, you know, in that kind of offsite focused way with all of us as a team together, I think, again, just kind of helps us to keep on taking things to the next level. Um, and in fact, in one of the first retreats we had, one of the things that we did was we actually hired, um, we actually both know her from um, the board we were on, Peg Rowe, um, who's a corporate trainer. She came and helped us um, create our mission statement for the company. And, um, and it was just such a, like a really meaningful, thoughtful way in which we came up with um, the words to articulate our mission and our values and everything. Like we've been feeling it and like living it, but to actually be able to pinpoint those words and then, you know, and then take it from there and stuff. I think um, I, I was so excited that night I could like barely go to sleep, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, it's just been really fun. And again, in that team environment with my employees and everything to get different insights and, and then again, to get that feedback from clients along the way as well too, and to hear the things that they like and things they don't like, um, that, you know, things that are really resonating with them. I know one thing I've mentioned to you is that um, part of what we do within the investments that we offer for clients is we focus a lot on ESG investing. 
um, which stands for environmental social governance. It's the um, term really for like socially responsible investments for those who don't know. Um, and in, in that space, things have really been evolving. And so we've been doing some really cool and unique things that um, that clients didn't even realize existed. So, so for example, we use gender lens investing for a portion of our clients' portfolios where um, the investment will filter for higher percentages of women in leadership roles. Um, and I, this is something that I really geek out on a lot because I've read a lot of this research and then there's more and more research too that just proves that when there's more diversity, typically teams outperform. Um, and, and in fact, we've also started integrating um, another investment that focuses, um, again, has a filter for companies um, that focus on more um, diverse policies as well. So not specific to women, actually specific to um, uh, more specifically black Americans here in the US. And it focuses on larger companies and medium sized companies and actually donates a portion of the proceeds to the NAACP. Um, so there are kind of some cool ways in which, you know, within a client's retirement account, for example, they can know that not only are they investing in a way that's going to be good for their retirement or whatever the goal may be, but also a way to give back. And, and we've been finding that those types of investments get clients really excited because if you think about it, right, the average person doesn't like log into their IRA and get like super jazzed about it. Um, but, but kind of knowing that there is this purpose and this mission and these extra things that they are able to do with those dollars, I think is just really exciting. Um, so, so I'll, yeah. you know, I may present a portfolio to a client and there might be eight different options in there and they might remember the one or two that actually have kind of those unique ESG um, aspects to it. And they'll, they'll, they'll say like, oh my gosh, I love that one. Or, oh, that's my favorite or th things that typically, people typically don't say about their IRA. <laughs> well, it's, it's absolutely true. And you know this about me and, and our listeners do as well, that, that ESG is what I do every day in my, in my consulting work. And I also moved all of my retirement funds to a gender lens investing platform um, that you know well and love, um, Sally Krawcheck's um, Elevest. And I I love my work there. And as you've seen companies, as we've, as the world has seen companies um, in both the gender lens investing, but in ESG investing in general, companies that have been strong in ESG are outperforming the S&P 500 right now. And funds that are ESG focused and gender lens focused are outperforming the S&P 500 on all of this COVID stuff. And it's been really interesting. Um, you know, my husband's Retirement accounts are in in a more traditional portfolio, just based on where they are, and mine are in a more gender lens portfolio. And it has been fun to watch mine not lose as much steam as his has over the last few months. Um, and those are are things that we'll continue to watch over time. But I think this COVID nineteen journey financially will teach a lot of people to to get in and think about those ESG lenses in a different way. Oh, absolutely. And I will say right now we have more ESG um, options when it comes to investments than we did um, during the financial crisis. I mean, a lot more. And um, it is, I think, really powerful to see, right, all of um, the, uh, I guess, like the hypothesis around it, right? So there's a lot of research that shows that they outperform their peers, but in such a catastrophic way to see the differences right now, I think is really powerful. And I think we'll continue to see that as well too. Um, I know in, in the kind of the financial advisory world, um, there's been this myth that um, ESG portfolios 
um, will require the investor to give up performance. In fact, I was just talking to an advisor last week where I said that's not true. Um, and, and I think part of that was because when ESG investing first came out, they had higher fees, there was a lack of options. Um, but now there is so much more out there um, that, that you don't necessarily have to give up performance. And definitely in a lot of cases, they will outperform as well, too. So, so just kind of having that lens um, in your portfolio, I think, is just one um, really great strategy that a lot of people can easily employ these days, too, way more than we were able to, you know, even just 10 years ago. Um, I think also, too, what's interesting when you read the headlines and everything um, I think, you know, whether it's on a big scale or a small scale, I think what we're also seeing in this COVID environment um, is that um, a lot of companies that are not doing the right things are really feeling the backlash right now as well, too. So, um, I mean, you know, we're seeing a lot of businesses go out of business. There will be more companies, I'm sure, that will wind up filing for bankruptcy or closing their doors um, before the year is over. And, and we've definitely seen that some of that is because they're not being responsible, because they're not treating their employees well, um, you know, because the owners have made, um, locally here in Chicago, I know there've been a lot of owners that have um, made racist comments and people have boycotted and they've already shut down. I mean, in the matter of uh, really a short period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we can see both ends of the spectrum here really, um, which again, I think is just really powerful to see. Yeah, the turn is quick. It's been fascinating just in the last week. Um, one of the most well-known in sustainable fashion brands, Reformation has been, their CEO has been drugged through the mud because of really horrible negative racial comments that she's made, that former employees are making. And it's kind of one of those things that even the sustainable players are not, there's no get out of jail free card because you're doing one thing right, but not another. And these kinds of turns happen so fast for companies to, you know, fall from grace or go from being okay to being in bankruptcy. Um, it's been shocking to watch, you know, I think when you're in the market, it's not as shocking, but as a consumer to see how fast these bankruptcies, JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, all of these companies have come so quickly after COVID-19. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll plug my I'll plug my other podcast as we talk about it I'm on my my new sustainability podcast table stakes. Um, I had the uh, the bankruptcy reporter for Bloomberg on my podcast um, this week, and it was a fascinating discussion about the ethics of bankruptcy and can companies declare bankruptcy responsibly. So, little plug on office baggage for my other podcast. Um, so, let's dive deeper on the topic of women and, and finance. You have really focused heavily on women. You've got Smart Women in Wealth and Smart Money Workshops, among other things. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see women making with their finances? And I know that ESG investing is frankly one of those mistakes because there are good, good studies out there that show that women are less likely to, for instance, with their retirement plans, even go in and tailor the funds that they're investing in, where men are more likely to go in and pick their funds. Um, so what are some of the mistakes like that that you see women kind of traditionally making in their finance? Well, I think one thing that I see a lot is, um, so, well, just to take a step back, like in terms of how our brains work, women um, are, are known to be a little more risk aware so than men. Men aren't- I like that term because <laughs> you hear about women being risk averse, but I, it, it's not risk averse, it's risk yeah. aware. Yeah. That's fascinating. 
Yeah. So, so it's not that they're necessarily afraid of risk, right? But they're not going to be as likely to just jump in and take take risk on or anything. So, um, so one thing that I see is sometimes when people don't know what to do, they just do nothing. And so one um, one big example of that would be just carrying too much cash. So being afraid of investing and then being um, you know just afraid of what you would do in the market or kind of not knowing what to do, not knowing what kind of account to put it in or what type of investment, and just getting overwhelmed. Um, and then just kind of sitting on a bunch of cash. Um, Guilty so say, as charged. <laughs> Guilty say, as charged. It's a good problem to have. I drive my husband crazy. <laughs> good problem to have, but a problem nonetheless, um, especially with, you know, bank accounts not paying very much these days. You know, with every year, you um, if you're earning close to zero in a bank account and how much you're paying for goods is going up by 2 or 3% on average each year with inflation, um, you know, you're just kind of missing out over time, especially if we think of the long term of someone's entire career of like 40 or 50 years. So, um, so again, good problem to have, but still a problem. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I think, um, you know, one other, um, uh, I don't know if I call it a mistake so much, but I think it might just be um, a level of like awareness that I think is sometimes missing, um, especially with women is, um, I think that in my mind, I feel like the more money you have, typically the more options it gives you. And I think that money is really a tool that, you know, for lack of a better term, really gives people power, quite honestly. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, for so long, right, women weren't even able to easily work out of their homes. Women are still paid less than men. And so I think that we are probably a little less likely to consider money to really be that tool of power than, um, than men are quite so much. Um, so like one great example that I can think of that I've seen in numerous cases is the case of like the unmarried couple that lives together. And on more than one occasion, I've seen this where the man is the one who maybe had bought a condo, they're still dating, nothing's legally tied. Um, and the man will continue to pay that mortgage. And then the woman pays for utilities and groceries. And, and that doesn't mean that that contribution is not valuable, but if you think about who's paying for that home, you know, the, many times, right, like we're not necessarily using like kind of that equality piece that money can bring you and everything, whatever equality looks like to you. Um, and I think it is easy to minimize then that purchasing power when the person's paying for kind of the extras, if you think of it that way, versus paying for the core of the household. Um, and that's just kind of one routine example that I've seen. Um, and again, I think, I think it kind of goes back to just kind of realizing that money really is power. And that, and that we should all be comfortable with that because there is definitely um, a certain amount of voting that we do with those dollars, right? And even mm -hmm. if we think back to these ESG op, um, uh, scenarios that we've talked about, right? Like we're voting with those dollars. So every day when you spend a dollar, you are making a vote in one way or another um, and you're you know, using those dollars as a source of power, really. It's so interesting because the I you know the worst financial mistake I've ever made I was divorced at a young age and I let my ex husband have the house and it for me as a young woman I said I just want to walk away I want to you know sort of and I took some it, it's funny because at the moment when you're when you're in your early twenties the house was debt right and we also had some credit card debt so we walked away and my husband took the house debt and I took the credit card debt and you know 15 years later I guess how long has it been that I've been divorced he got to sell the house and I didn't get to do it you know the credit card debt's been gone for years but that didn't help me and it, it does remind me of what you're saying about the unmarried couple or or even the married couple when things are in the man's name and we still are so as a society so comfortable with the idea that 
maybe a man's name is on the deed, but the woman's isn't, or that he takes the mortgage out. Well, he's gaining the financial history. He's gaining the credit. He's gaining the equity. And, you know, the woman has nothing. So learn from my mistakes on that one too. <laughs> I've, I learned, I've learned the second time around, but you know, first time around, not so, not so hot. I think it's tough though, because there's so much emotion when it comes to money too, you know? So, yes. um, and I think sometimes people realize that when they're making decisions, but there are a lot of times where I think people just aren't even thinking about that, right? They're caught up in those emotions. Um, and so, you know, I mean, so your story, right? I mean, uh, for uh, that, that one story, right? There are probably thousands, tens and thousands of people that have similar stories that are, you know, um, that are going through similar things or have been through similar things, right? Because there are times where it just feels so emotional that, yeah, you know, yeah, that you just want to walk away and just kind of wash your hands of it, really, and that's tough. Well, and it's one of those um, without, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not setting you up to make a pitch. I really am not. Although, you know, people can find your company, but those are the moments that you say this is why you should have a financial advisor as well, because just like you'd have a lawyer in that instance of of a divorce or a, a split or something like that happening in your life, you you should have someone who is impartial, if you will, and can look at a situation without the same emotion that you would. Um, how do you see, are women less likely to get an advisor than men are? And what, what do you say to women who haven't had a financial advisor and want to consider that for the first time? So um, statistically speaking, yes, there, um, there are um, less women with financial advisors. So that, and now I think that that is starting to change. I hope that over time it will change. Um, but generally speaking, the person who is still catered to by the financial services company is um, the older white gentleman who looks a lot like the advisor who's the older white gentleman. Um, and in a lot of cases too, one thing that we see that, that I personally think is part of the problem is um, that wives aren't always included in those relationships or discussions. Um, you know, So even if there is a couple they're not necessarily included in that financial advisory relationship. Um, and so, so I do think though that more and more young women are hiring financial advisors. Um, I mean, definitely more than half of our clients are women. Um, <clears throat> what we see too is that um, there are just so many really successful, smart, educated women out there. Um, and, and they're really open to having an advisor to help them. Um, one thing I found on more than one occasion too, though, is that at times they have a hard time finding the right advisor. Um, so it's happened on more than one occasion where a client has, you know, maybe met with a couple of the older guys, maybe it's their parents' advisor. Um, on more than one occasion, people have told me that they were talked down to in the meetings. They were kind of mansplained in the meetings. Um, there was one person who was referred to me um, who has a significant amount of wealth, um, has, you know, a million dollars at Marina Wealth. And um, she had met with a few advisors and was getting to the point where she's like, I guess I'm just going to be stuck with one of these guys that talks down to me, you know, it's a woman in her thirties. And, um, you know, and then luckily she was referred to us. Um, but, you know, I mean, to get to the point where you're just throwing your hands up in the air and you think, oh, I guess I just have to be talked down to when I bring over my million dollars doesn't seem quite appropriate, <laughs> you know? And um, I think that more often than not, you, it would be, instead of I'm going to end up with these, one of these guys, it might be just be do nothing. I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think there probably are plenty of people um, that feel that way too. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there are plenty of wonderful male advisors out there. There are plenty of older advisors that are wonderful. Um, I mean, there, you know, there's every type of person out there. Right. Um, but I, I just think that there um, are, you know, when you think of the pool of people, right, I think it's just a little bit harder 
um, if you're someone like you or I, um, you know, to kind of find your right fit and everything. It's just, um, and again, I think that that's starting to change, but um, we're not quite where I would want to see the industry yet. We haven't really quite changed nearly enough um, in terms of like the numbers of female advisors and the percentages mm-hmm. and statistics. We haven't really changed very much since I started 15 years ago, so which is disheartening. Um, yeah, absolutely. In terms of the person who um, is wanting a financial advisor, I mean, I think one of the best things to do is just do a little bit of research, right? In the matter of an hour or two, you can do some web searches, you can read a little bit um, on what to consider with a financial advisor. Um, there are lots of different options for advisors out there. Um, you know, every firm's a little different in terms of their services and which clients they work with. Um, there are vir- firms that are totally virtual. Um, there are some that are more locally based. There are big companies, small companies. Um, so I, th- I think just taking a little bit of time to just do a little bit of, you know, just even basic research um, can be a really great place to start. Um, and then I think um, next, what would be most important too, I, I think would be to consider also, you know, what you even want to be doing with your money. So that's one mm-hmm. thing I always say, right? Like your money is a tool to really do the things that you want. So I think um, that, you know, as you're considering an advisor, right, you want to make sure that it's somebody who's going to be aligned with the things that you actually want to be committing your money to, not somebody who's going to kind of push you in one direction or another if it doesn't make sense. Um, And now don't get me wrong, right, there are times where clients have red flags, or I might have an idea they haven't thought about and stuff. So of course, the advisor should be speaking up as the expert. um, But but you want to make sure that it's somebody who's going to really be suiting your needs and everything. Um, And then one thing that I see a lot is people um, will interview numerous advisors. So um, they'll schedule introductory meetings with several different advisors and then figure out who they feel most comfortable with, who they feel is the best fit. Um, Of course, getting a referral can be a a great way too if you have a friend who has an advisor that they love. Um, So I think there are a lot of different ways to get information um, without even having to talk to anybody, which is the great thing I think about technology these days, that you don't have to sit through that like uncomfortable sales pitch with somebody if you don't want to. You can definitely get a lot of information um, to then decide, okay, do I even want to take the time to be on the phone with this person or meet them in person or or whatnot? Um, So... I think there's definitely a lot, a lot that you can easily do without even get engaging in the sales conversation in yeah. the beginning. Absolutely. So while we have you on the podcast, I want to ask you some kind of nuts and bolts questions with the caveat that this is not direct financial advice from Jessica, <laughs> but she's going to give us her thoughts on a few kind of hot topics. Um, I think especially for women in general, but, but for right now, for this topic, I think financial fear is at play in everyone's mind, whether you have a steady job or you're afraid for your job or your job has changed. A lot of people taking pay cuts. So let's, let's dive into a few of these. So one of the biggest places you and I know that women can have an effect on their financial picture in the long term is in salary and negotiating for dollars at work. For those folks who might be changing jobs right now, maybe they were laid off, maybe they were furloughed, maybe they hate what their company's doing with COVID-19 and they're trying to find a new one. How do you advise women to get negotiation right so that they can maximize their their pay in the long term? Yeah, so I think um, definitely one big thing to take a look at is the total package. So, and I would say everything, right? Everything from what it costs for your health insurance to what the match is on your 401k, um, is there a pension? Because those are all dollars that your employer is giving you and that is all part of the picture. 
Um, I think it's really easy to focus on just salary a lot of the time, but the total picture is really what's going to hurt or help you in the long run. Um, now, if you have a job, um, one thing that I always do for my clients that I would recommend is doing a side-by-side -side comparison. So what do you have at the current employer and what are you going to be walking away from? Um, you know, so I would look at things like, is there company stock that they're giving you? Is there a bonus that you receive? Um, are you not vested in your 401k match? Um, and I, I would really take inventory of everything and take inventory of what you've already earned from that company. And then again, what still hasn't festered or what's on the horizon. Um, and I would, I would pinpoint those dollar amounts. And then if you're comparing this to another job offer, I, I would do that side-by-side -side comparison then um, to see, you know, what are you walking away from and then what are you gaining? And now granted money doesn't have to be the only reason why you choose a job. I mean, there could be times where you choose to take a pay cut um, because you, you know, want to change industries or you, you know, maybe are unhappy in your current employer and that's okay. But I just think the more educated you are when you make that decision, the, the better it is. Um, and the other thing to consider too, is that you can potentially use some of those numbers to also negotiate. So for example, if your employer gives you stock every year and you're not going to you're now going to lose 200 shares if you leave now versus leaving in six months or a year. Um, you could potentially leverage that to then negotiate on X amount of dollars of shares in the new company if that's an option or a hiring bonus. Um, so what I find is just the more that you can quantify when you're negotiating, I think the better. Um, and I also think that one thing to be aware of is many times when you're receiving that job offer, they don't know that you're six months away from vesting on those shares or that you're getting a 5% 401k match or whatever the case may be. Um, so, so they haven't necessarily factored that into your offer. Um, so, and, and I think one thing that I always say to my clients too is, you know, the, of course there's a risk that they'll say no. Generally speaking, if, if it's a good company, they should say, well, sorry, we're already, you're already at the top. We can't do any more or give you the compelling reason why they can't pay you more. Um, in some cases they'll pay you more or they'll give you that hiring bonus or they'll, you know, um, do what you said. In many cases they might meet you in the middle. Um, there, of course, is the chance that they might run for the hills or not be so nice about it, but I also think that might be a red flag as well, too. Absolutely. So, so especially if you're leaving a job that you're decently content in. Yeah, I think the way a company negotiates with you should be a signal of the way that company does business in general. I've been there. I've been there where I've negotiated a salary with a company and it felt rotten coming out of it. And you know, the job didn't, the job might've been rotten in that situation too. And it's like, learn, learn about, you know, it's the sort of when people show you who they are, believe them. When companies show you who they are, believe them. And negotiation is that first opportunity to find out where, how that company really plays the game and what they really value. Oh, absolutely. I love the side-by-side -side comparison as well, because I think as people, we tend to value sometimes very highly non-financial parts of a package. So where's my office? Now am I working from home? What is, you know, what does all of that look like? Um, but to put the side-by-side -side real numbers on a page and to show yourself that even if you value so much working from home, what are the, what are the dollar to dollar comparisons is, is very, very helpful. Absolutely. And again, money doesn't need to be the only reason, right? But let's say you have a job where you're earning $100,000 and they're they're giving you a 5% 401k match. That's $5,000. Is working from home worth that to you or not? You know, again, can you parlay that into another $5,000 from the new employer? 
Um, so again, just kind of thinking of it in terms of dollars, um, I, I think can help any individual make an educated decision on, on what they value, what's important to them and what's not important. Yeah. So for a lot of people, especially those who are in their, you know, 20s, 30s, starting out, um, maybe the only investment they have is a 401k. For somebody who says, okay, well, I want to buy stock, Jess. I want to, I want to, you know, take, let's say I have an extra $5,000 and I want to put that in an account in the market. How do people get started? What's the first step that you would recommend a new investor who's only ever had a company 401k? What's the first few steps they should take? So I always think uh, definitely take an inventory of your entire financial situation is an important thing to do. Um, I, I think definitely people will like hear the stock markets down and they'll think, oh, I should buy stock. And they, you know, they kind of don't exactly know what that means even sometimes. Um, and so, so I would just be careful, right? Like, do you have debts you need to pay off? Do you have an emergency fund or is this 5,000 really everything, right? So I, I would kind of mm -hmm. do a little bit of a gut check there first. Um, but let's say you are somebody who's in a position where, you know, maybe you had a windfall of an extra 5,000 and everything looks good in your situation. Um, I mean, there are a lot of different user-friendly options out there for you. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, the option of, um, of a firm like mine where it's more comprehensive, more longer term, um, you know, that's certainly one fit for the type of person that wants more of that comprehensive kind of ongoing help. Um, but there are plenty of tools for people that want to do it themselves um, or, or somebody who maybe just wants to kind of play around a little bit. Um, so there are definitely a lot of firms like discount brokerage firms where they have different online accounts. Um, there are plenty of companies where it's all online. They actually don't have like the brick and mortar. Um, so I think that's one easy way. Um, definitely more and more there are robo advisors out there as well, too. Um, where they actually kind of set up um, more of an infrastructure around the trading. Um, you won't always be able to buy individual stocks at a robo-advisor, um, but nonetheless, that's one option. There are also a lot of cool apps. I feel like almost every day a new app pops up that I haven't heard of. Um, so there are all sorts of apps you can use um, for investing. Um, another option would be if your company has um, other benefits that you haven't taken advantage of, like a stock purchase plan, that could be an easy way. Um, like the way an employer stock purchase plan typically works um, is a portion of your paycheck go, comes out and mm -hmm. is allocated into the company's stock. Um, and many times it's at a discount. So I always think that's kind of a cool thing um, to consider and, and to look into the degrees of to see if that's um, a good option. So um, yes, yeah, so luckily there are a lot of different ways um, to do it. But I will say that when, when I do have a client who's like, oh, I want to take X amount of dollars and just put it into stock kind of for the fun of it, um, we definitely always want to do a little bit of that gut check on whether or not it's an appropriate amount. And many times I'll right. say too is, you know, let's make sure. So if it is $5,000, let's make sure it's a $5,000, uh, you know, budget that is money that we are okay totally losing. Because to the point that you made earlier, right, even big, long time, seemingly stable companies can file for bankruptcy. And, um, and then those shares are really pretty much worthless. So, so as we're kind of taking the risk on one company, I always want to make sure that, that we're in a position to be able to do that without it derailing anything else that that client's working on. And so the same would be true. I'd be even more cautious, you know, for the person who's, um, who's going to go and, and try to, you know, buy a bunch of companies online and everything. Yeah. So nine-year-old Jessica, nine-year-old <laughs> Jessica would disagree, you know, you're, she would, she would want all the stock certificates and you're, you're saying, hold on nine-year-old Jessica, maybe not quite. I mean, I guess, but uh, my babysitting money wasn't quite make or break, I guess. So. I love it. I love it. Um, 
So you and I both served on a nonprofit board, as I said at, at the beginning, and both of us have been been very dedicated to to women's issues. How important is it to your clients and how do you advise people to make decisions around charitable donations? We all want to do good for the nonprofit community in our world. Do you have a, a advice formulas that you use on how much people should donate? What what's appropriate to donate? How do you advise people on making those very tough decisions? So I would say it again kind of ties my philosophy at least ties back to um, you know using your money to do the things you want. And so what I found is that for some individuals, charitable giving is very important to them. And for other individuals, it's just not as important. Um, so I, th I think that really first and foremost should always drive the decisions we're making. Um, and then from there, um, in many cases, we'll kind of talk through with the client, um, you know, maybe what they're already doing, right? So we see this with clients where they might have monthly donations or something kind of their paycheck through work, or um, maybe there's an organization locally that, you know, they donate to once a week or once a month or, or whatnot. Um, so we kind of start with what they already have if it's a client who maybe indicates, well, I want to give more, you know, I haven't been as diligent about it, um, then definitely one, one big thing that we've been doing more and more with clients is just kind of carving out the amount that seems to make the most sense for them. Um, and the way I see it is that there's always some give and take, right? So <clears throat> if giving to charity is something that's important, um, then definitely we can make room within their spending for that. Um, it just might mean that something else might need to be reduced um, or it might maybe come with their next bonus or, or whatnot. Um, so more than anything, we just try to make sure that there's a strategy within the, the confines of their spending. Um, and, and now one thing I should mention is um, with all of our clients, we, um, we at Marina Wealth, we have a financial counselor on staff and um, she uh, has a certification around budgeting and cash flow. So for every client, we do what we call a cash flow assessment, where she gets into the nitty gritties of their spending. So then we can really see and the clients can see, right? If they're spending $2,000 a month going out to dinner and um, pre-COVID for most people, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> well, and hopefully we'll go back to post-COVID at some point. Uh, I spend more money ordering in now than I probably did going out to dinner <laughs> before. Um, but right, the client can see, and if, if they say, well, I want to give a little bit more to charity, then maybe it just means they spend 1500 a month going out to eat and 500 then goes to XYZ charity every month or 6000 a year or what, whatever the case may be for that particular client. Um, so, so our general philosophy, right, is that our clients should be able to see the ones that dictate what's important to them because they work hard for their money. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think that's really a very personal decision on how much you want to give to charity. Um, and of course, right, there are... There, there are different tax benefits and there, there are various benefits, of course, that you can get from charitable giving. But I think first and foremost, there should be that personal decision of which organizations you want to give to, why you want to give, and, and how much of your money you think you want to give. That's great advice. Well, I know our listeners will take away lots of tidbits from everything we've talked about today. We'll make sure that we link all of Marina Wealth Management in the show notes so that people can find you and connect with you on social media, come to your Smart Women events and, and learn more about what you do. So thank you so much, Jess, for being here. It's great to have you. And I know at this time of chaos and confusion, a lot of people are afraid about money. So hopefully these tips will help someone to have some peace of mind as they go forward in their financial picture right now. Yeah, thanks so much. As I, as I mentioned, right, it feels like the world has kind of turned upside down from when we first talked about recording the podcast or not. But uh, but of course, right, financial stability and feeling comfortable with your money, I think. is Always an ongoing topic. Absolutely. Great. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, thanks so much.